You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I invite you to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. This is the fourth sermon in this mini-series on parenting. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses in Proverbs chapter 3. When our kids were doing school online earlier in the pandemic, they had transitioned because of health risks province-wide from meeting in person to meeting online, I started leading them in morning devotions. We usually do our family devotions after dinner, but my wife and I believe that it would be helpful for us to begin the day with God's word. And so we would pray together, we would read scripture together, we would sing a hymn, and then we would recite what we called the Tong Family Way. The Tong Family Way. And this consisted of a series of pledges They were actually authored by one of the teachers at the Christian school, Innova Academy in Newmarket, to help families at the school start the day off well while learning online. Our children made these pledges Monday to Friday to their parents and to one another to love God, to follow Jesus, and to depend on the Spirit. They promised to forgive one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, and they promised to obey us as their parents, and to submit to our discipline. Now, that's not to say that they always kept those pledges, but we were pledging to do that, saying that this is the Tong family way. If you are a Tong, this is how the members of the Tong family strive to conduct themselves. And I'd never done anything like that before, but as we went through these pledges every single day, I came to appreciate them more and more because they reminded our children about what our family is all about. This is the Tong family way. So when people meet members of the Tong family, we want these values, these commitments that we make to one another before God to come to the minds of the people that we encounter. There was a time when we used to see this kind of thing a lot more when individuals would take on the values of the institutions that they were a part of, the community that they were intentionally, voluntarily part of, the missions and values of these collective entities, whether it be a university or a club or a church or a family. And the members of these institutions would say, well, I am part of that, and therefore I strive to become more like that the individual would conform to the institution. But now, in our radically individualistic society, we see the exact opposite, where the institution is meant to conform to the individual. Your moral code of conduct offends me, so you have to change it. Or your use of words doesn't make me feel safe, so you all have to use different words to conform to me. Well, that is not how the family is meant to function. Families are meant to take the values contained in the Bible and pass them on to their children, and the children are meant to say, these are my family values, and therefore, this, these are my values. To be part of the family 
is to ascribe to an identity that exists beyond yourself, but increasingly characterizes who you are individually. Now, every family has its own values. It could be limited or unlimited screen time, or teaching the kids to do chores, or teaching the kids to save their money, or having a culture of celebrating birthdays. But it is our biblical values that are most important for us to pass on. And today, we are going to see five of the most important values that we are meant to have as Christian families passing on to children growing up within our Christian families. The title of this sermon is simply Five Foundational Values of the Christian Family. And yes, you read that right. This is not a three-point sermon. It's a five-point sermon. So buckle up. This is going to be quite the ride. Value number one, steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. The book of Proverbs is an assorted collection of different voices and different styles. The earlier chapters, chapters one to nine, so that includes our chapter today, chapter three, consists of a series of lectures in which King Solomon is instructing his son. Now you remember, if you have read the Old Testament, you know that when Solomon became king, God welcomed him to ask him for whatever he wanted. And Solomon, in his wisdom, asked for more wisdom. He was aware of his limitations as a man, as a ruler, as a leader, and he asked, God, give me wisdom to govern this, your great people. And God was pleased with that request. He not only gave him wisdom, but he gave him the things that he didn't ask for. He gave him riches, and he gave him kingdoms, and he gave him military victories. And so what we see in the book of Proverbs is this wise king of Israel taking the divine wisdom that he prayed for and received and passing it on to the crown prince so that his son would learn how to live well and to rule well as well. Now, we may not be kings and queens, but many of us are parents, just like Solomon, and we can look to him not just as a king, but as a father, a godly father who sought to raise up his children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this does not at all mean that mothers are not involved in parenting or that daughters are excluded from instruction in the home. In chapter 1, verse 8, Solomon says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. And so mom is teaching as well. Father is leading the way, but mother is teaching. And if mother is teaching, that means mother has been taught. These verses apply to fathers and mothers, sons and daughters equally. But they are written from the perspective of a father to remind us of the lesson from Ephesians chapter 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers are meant to take the lead in the moral, spiritual, and religious instruction that takes place in the home. Our text today begins in verses 1 to 2, where Solomon writes, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Here in these verses, Solomon tells his son what to do and why he should do it. First, what, what should he do? Well, he should remember his father's teaching by obeying his father's commandment. Notice, notice carefully the flow of thought 
in verse one. Solomon doesn't say, do not forget my teaching, but remember it. That would be the corresponding. Do not forget, but remember. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. So Solomon is not just interested in what his son can recall. He is interested in what his son does. He's interested in action, in a changed life. He wants his son to keep his words from the heart. And here's the reason. For, verse two, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Solomon is teaching his son not only how to live well, but to live long. Because the life well lived is the life that endures. I mean, there, there are exceptions to this. Okay, if we, if we see the book of Proverbs as, as the general trajectory of how life typically unfolds, we have the footnote of the book of Job, where things don't always end up the way that we expect them to, where the righteous suffer, where the blameless man looks like the cursed man, the man who has been cursed by God. There are exceptions to these rules. Proverbs, therefore, isn't so much a collection of promises that God is promising to give you these things if you only live this way as they are a collection of statements of how the world generally works. How God has created the order of the world to unfold if you live a certain way. And here, it tells us that if we remember and obey these words, then we will likely live long and happy lives. Living this way also brings us peace. Length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. These days, we think about peace as being internal peace. You know, the feeling of zen, as our culture would call it. This is, this is way beyond that. Biblical peace is shalom. It is the peace of God. It is, it is wholeness in your life. It is, it is not just internal peace, but peace in every area of your life. Peace at work and peace in the home. Peace with God and peace with those around you. Peace in the soul and peace in society. Live this way and the Bible promises or predicts that you will enjoy and experience shalom. So, how should his son live to live long in peace? Well, what does that kind of life look like? What are the teachings that he must not forget but be careful to keep from his heart? The first thing Solomon emphasizes is found in verses three and four. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and men. This is where we find value number one for the purposes of this sermon today and for the purposes of Solomon's sermon to his son. Value number one, steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. We are to bind these qualities around our necks. They are meant to be attractive they are meant to be noticed, and we are to write them on the tablet of our hearts, which means that it characterizes who we are in our innermost being. We are to be people of steadfast love and faithfulness because we serve a God 
of steadfast love and faithfulness. Throughout the Old Testament, we see these two values put side by side to describe the character of God. Exodus 34, verse six, when Moses asks the Lord, Lord, please show me your glory. And God declares his name. He he shows him his back, not his whole being because no one can see God and live, but he declares his name and he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 25, verse 10, all the paths of the Lord, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 36, verse 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. If you are a Christian saying that you follow and worship the God of the Bible, then you are called to bind this around your neck and write it on the tablet of your heart the values of steadfast love and faithfulness. But what does that look like? Well, the Hebrew word for steadfast love, many of us know this, is hesed. Hesed. It's God's covenant love for his people. It's not primarily the emotion of love, though it certainly includes and involves that, it's, but it's more importantly, it's the commitment of love. It, it's, it's the love that characterizes what a husband and wife do when they make vows to one another. I promise that I will do this till the day that I die. It captures the sacred commitment that God has made to his people to restore them, to redeem them, and to rescue them. Other Bible translations translate hesed as loyalty and even kindness because it it moves God as he shows his steadfast love to intervene in the lives of his covenant people. He's committed to do them good. He's committed to show them mercy. He is committed to intervene in their trials and tribulations to show them kindness. And Solomon says this is the quality that is meant to characterize God's people that we, we serve and worship a God of steadfast love and we should be a people of steadfast love. And he adds that we are to be a people of steadfast love and faithfulness, which means that we never stop. We never stop in our steadfast love towards those that God has put around us. We are to show steadfast love faithfully whenever God gives us the opportunity. My friends, that, that is what we are meant to teach our children above and beyond Values that we might have already been working to pass on to them, the value of hard work, being responsible, being honest, telling the truth. We, we want to teach them all those things, but, but the word of God, if we are to follow what God's word instructs us and directs us to do, we are to pass on the value of being steadfast love and faithful people. When they see a need, we want to teach them that they shouldn't ignore it or just expect someone else to step up and take care of it. Not to be like the priest or the Levite that passed the, the Israelite who was beaten and broken by the side of the road, but to be like the Samaritan, to stop and to do something about it. When their friends are going through a, a difficult season, when, when life at home isn't very good and their friends are depressed or discouraged, to not abandon them, to not go seek greener pastures to the popular people in the class, but to be faithful to their friends. 
We want our children to constantly think about how they can serve those around them, how to show kindness to the people that God has put in their lives, how their lives can overflow with acts of kindness, to be people of steadfast love and faithfulness who point people to the God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's value number one. Value number two, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Look at verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It is not a coincidence that Solomon follows this ethical command, this moral standard of living as one who is characterized by steadfast love and faithfulness with this word about trusting the Lord. It is possible to pursue steadfast love and faithfulness by your own strength, by trusting in your own willpower. And Solomon says it doesn't begin with that. It doesn't begin with you. It begins with your relationship with God, to trust in the Lord. And notice the repetition here. Solomon had told his son to let his heart keep his commandments. And then he had told his son to write steadfast love and faithfulness on his heart. And now he tells him to trust in the Lord with all his heart. These verses make the heart central to this command to obey and to become people of steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, the heart of the Bible is not the heart of Valentine's Day, okay? It's not just a symbol of romantic passion and love. It's not gushy. It's not sentimental. According to Scripture, the the heart is the center of our being, and everything flows out of what is in our hearts. And so Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. All of life flows from the heart. And so what what is in our hearts will either sweeten the water that comes out of it or poison it. What we value, how we live, how we use our time, how we spend our money, how we teach our kids, what we teach our kids, it all flows from what is in our hearts. And here in verse five, Solomon tells his son that Trust in the Lord shouldn't just be part of his heart. It should be all of his heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart so that everything he does flows from this trust, this position of dependence on God. And this means that his son cannot lean on his own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding because if he would lean on his own understanding, he wouldn't be trusting the Lord. He'd be trusting in himself. To lean on your own understanding is to rely on a broken crutch. It will not hold you up. You are not sufficient in your own wisdom, experience, and judgment to depend on yourself. But to lean on the Lord, to trust in the Lord is to rest on a solid rock that can never be moved. Later on in the book of Proverbs, it says that we also should not trust in what we have, not in who we are or in what we have. Chapter 11, verse 28 says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. To trust in your riches is to derive your sense of significance and security 
by how much you own or by how much you make or by how much bigger your house is compared to other people. You know, when, when I used to practice law before I entered pastoral ministry, there were times when I could be quite anxious about the financial aspect of life. I had lots of expenses, renting an office downtown Toronto, having to pay law society fees and disbursements and all that. And I remember solving my anxiety by looking at my bank account. Every day. I mean, it seems weird now to me, but every day I remember opening up the app on my phone or the app on my computer and looking at my bank account and going, oh, phew, I'm going to be okay. That's trusting in your riches. I was trusting in my riches. But verse five says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, not yourself and not in your riches. Verse six puts it a different way. It says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. The the word acknowledge him is literally know him. In all your ways, know him. Everything you do, everything you are flows from your relationship with God, from your knowledge of who God is. If God is faithful, then you don't need to be anxious. If God is powerful, then you don't need to be afraid. If God is forgiving, then you don't need to fear his condemnation. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And so, parents, how do we teach our kids this value of trusting in the Lord with all their hearts? Well, when our kids come home and they haven't done very well on that test or that exam or that significant paper that they had to write and they're feeling horrible about themselves, we tell them to trust in the Lord, not in their grades. Or when when they think they are worth less or they are not seen, that they are not valuable because that popular kid in the class is so much more attractive than them, we say, trust in the Lord, not in beauty. When they're spending too much time watching Netflix or YouTube or whatever entertainment context they immerse themselves in, we tell them to trust in the Lord, not in entertainment. We teach our children to trust in the Lord by directing them to his word. There is an inseparable connection between the person of God and the word of God. Proverbs, again, instructs us helpfully here. Chapter 16, verse 20, whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. When we give thought to God's word, We trust in the God who authored that word by his spirit. Proverbs 22, verse 19, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, that is the words of the wise contained in these pages, that your trust may be in the Lord. And so we pass on the value that we are not just a people of God, but we are a people of God's word. And we show that we are a people of God's word by teaching our kids to read and to love and to believe the Bible. Value number three, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Verses seven to eight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now anyone who listens to the latest parenting advice of your kids go to public school, know how the The trend of the day when it comes to parenting is that what our children need most is to believe in themselves. Believe in yourself and you are 90% of the way there to 
accomplishing and realizing your goals and your ambitions and your dreams. It's all about pumping up our children's self-esteem. But these verses say the opposite. The Bible's mantra when it comes to parenting is not teaching our kids to believe in themselves. It is to be not wise in your own eyes. Be not wise in your own eyes. That's not the same as be foolish in your own eyes. Okay, Solomon's not telling his son to think of himself as worthless and stupid. He's telling him not to think of himself at all. It's like that classic line from C.S. Lewis about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Instead, his son is to think more of God. If we want our children to believe in anyone, we want them to believe in God and not in themselves. And we see that in verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. The negative. What's the positive? Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Solomon wants his son to be free from being consumed with thoughts about himself so that he would be free to be consumed with thoughts about God. And when God fills the minds of our children, it produces the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And and Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the basic instinct for the God worshiper, for the Christ follower. It is the fear of the Lord. You cannot have wisdom if you don't have the fear of the Lord. Wisdom isn't found in having the right knowledge. Wisdom is found in having the right relationship with our creator, a relationship that is characterized by a reverential submission to God and to his ways. When I imagine what the fear of the Lord looks like practically, I think about that old theological Latin phrase, corum Deo, before the face of God. That all of the Christian life is lived corum Deo, before the face of God. When, when you are lying on a test and your teacher doesn't know, you know that God sees and God will hold you to account. When you are cheating the Canada Revenue Agency and you found some loopholes to save yourself a little bit more money so that you can spend it on yourself, on your home, or even on your kids, living before the face of God says, God sees this and God will hold me to account. That is the fear of the Lord. A recognition that nothing is hidden from the sight of Almighty God. It is a fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And I can live however I want without consequence. Now, like many of you, I enjoy watching Disney movies. I do, I watch them, and I enjoy them. My kids and I, we watch them together, but I cannot help but notice, and I'm sure you've noticed this as well, that the overall message is that you should just trust yourself. You know, Qui-Gon Jinn's advice to the little Padawan uh, Anakin Skywalker is follow your instincts. Don't, don't think, feel. Follow your heart. My friends, that is the contemporary version of be wise in your own eyes. And Proverbs 26 verse 12 warns us and it says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. My friends, friends, if we we teach our kids the ethic of Disney, 
rather than the ethic of the Bible, we are leading them into dangerous territory because we're making them fools. We cannot trust our instincts because our instincts are fallen. We cannot trust our hearts because our heart is deceitful above all else. We need to be guided by the final authority and the light of God's word. Well, how do we pass on this value? Fear the Lord, turn away from evil, be not wise in your own eyes. How do we pass that on? Well, one way is to teach our kids to seek the counsel and advice of others. Simple. Sometimes we imagine that our goal as parents is to raise up our children so they're completely self-sufficient. They can make decisions by themselves. They are decisive, they are confident, they can move forward independent of anyone else. We want to make them independent, self-sufficient, completely capable of making their own decisions. But listen, that, that is no different than teaching them to be wise in their own eyes. They don't need anybody else. They got their own brains. They got their own experience, their own instincts. If our children are to learn to trust in the Lord and to fear the Lord, then we need to teach them to seek out wise counsel. When they are stuck with a hard decision that they have to make, they don't just retreat to pray about it and think about it by themselves. They, They seek counsel. That is true maturity. True maturity is not depending on yourself. True maturity is learning to depend on the wisdom of godly counselors around you. The mature child says, yes, I have this hard decision to make and I'm not gonna just trust in myself. I'm gonna seek out counsel and God will guide me and he will use others to show me the way. Value number four, honor the Lord with your wealth. Verses nine and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I think most parents here recognize the need to teach our children to manage money well. Right? We want to teach them to save and invest and be responsible, to not be uh, spontaneous or irresponsible with how they use it. But, but I wonder how many of us recognize the need to teach our kids to honor the Lord with their wealth. I mean, this, this is where the rubber really meets the road, where the heart, what is truly in the heart is exposed. It's, it's in how we use our money. We can talk about trusting the Lord, fearing the Lord, all we want. If it doesn't change the way that we use our money, it means nothing. If we really trust the Lord with all our hearts, we will use our wealth to honor the Lord. And that means that we give generously to those who are in need. Steadfast love being acts of kindness. We, we show steadfast love with how we steward our finances and how we meet the needs of those around us. There is a close connection in the book of Proverbs between honoring the Lord and serving the poor. Proverbs 14, verse 21, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Proverbs 19, verse 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 22, verse 2, the rich and the poor meet together The Lord is the maker of them all. We honor the Lord with our wealth 
when we use it to serve others. But we also honor the Lord when we use our wealth in worship. I mean, verse 9, note the language, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. The, the word first fruits is used in the context of, of the Levitical laws when God's people would make their sacrifices, make their offerings in the tabernacle or in the temple as their act of worship. The first fruits were the best parts of the harvest. They were the biggest, sweetest, sweetest, tastiest fruits and vegetables. But rather than letting his people enjoy them after all their hard work, their, their toil, their day-to-day -day nurturing of their crop, rather than letting them enjoy the first fruits of the harvest for themselves, God called them to offer it to him. They were to be given back to God in worship. So you could say in New Testament terms that these verses are calling us to give to the needy and to give to the church, which is the New Testament temple of God. We're to give for the purpose of mercy and we're to give for the purpose of worship. We're to give so that people will be lifted up physically, materially, and we're to give so that people will be lifted up spiritually so that God's name would be lifted high. And we're to do so, listen, we're to do so with our first fruits, not with our leftovers. We aren't to spend our wealth on our own goals, on our own budget, on our own desires, and then see if there's anything left. And perhaps, perhaps we will give that to God. We're to take the best, the first fruits of what God has provided for us and give it away. If we do, then verse 10 tells us that our barns will be filled with plenty and our vats will be bursting with wine. This isn't prosperity gospel teaching where you, you honor God and God honors you by giving you the Ferrari or the mansion. This is so that we can have more to serve others. I love how Ray Ortland puts it very simply. He says, if you invest for his sake, he will give you more to invest for his sake. My friends, we are to teach our children to honor the Lord with their wealth, with the first fruits of their produce. That can mean teaching them not just to save, but to give. Teach them to work, not just so that they could appreciate the value of a dollar, but so they could experience the joy of generosity to the poor and to the church. Value number five. Lastly, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Verses 11 and 12 say, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is the final value in our text and it's perhaps the one that we would least expect. The other ones we can understand. But this one seems a little strange. It's instructing us to teach our children to respond to discipline in a godly manner. Sometimes we think that once we've disciplined our kids, our job as parents is done. But it isn't. Because teaching our kids to respond to discipline in a godly way is just as important as the discipline itself. I mean, parents, you know what it's like. 
to send your kid to your room or give them a little spank on the bum and you, 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 you try to embrace them, welcome them back, and they say, no! They resist you and they're not afraid of you. They're angry with you. How could you do that, mommy? How could you do that, daddy? They get angry. They don't respond to discipline well. You know, my dad, when I would act up at the dinner table, my dad used to send me to the washroom to sit in the dark. It was my own little quiet place. Because I was quite a boisterous little boy. And then he would call me back at some point and I would not come out. I mean, you've probably done that before, right? You can come out now. It's your resistance. It's your rebellion. You, you don't come out because you despise the discipline. Parents, we need to teach our kids to not despise our discipline, not only because we discipline them on behalf of God, but because it's only a matter of time before God disciplines them himself. And the question will be, how will they respond to that pain? With humility or with anger? Once again, the response to discipline is a central part of wisdom. Proverbs 12, verse 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. I mean, that's, that's not my words, it's the Bible's words. Proverbs 13, verse 18, poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. Proverbs 15, verse 32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. And so we are to be a people who love discipline. That doesn't mean that we love pain. I mean, this isn't easy. Hebrews 12, verse 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. Okay, it doesn't remove the sting of it. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But then that verse promises that later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We, we love discipline not because of how it makes us feel, but because of what it produces in us and what it produces in our children. And verse 12 reminds us, oh, this is a glorious truth. Verse 12 reminds us that the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. God's discipline is not an expression of his disgust. It is an expression of his delight. God disciplines us not despite his love, but because of his love. Because he knows that our sin and our foolishness that he is disciplining away would lead to our own personal self-destruction. It's one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis, again, he, he thought carefully about this. He wrote that when we complain about God's discipline, we're not asking for more love, but for less. When you complain about God leading you through hardship and trials, you're not asking for more of God's love, but for less. But how do we know that God disciplines us in love. How can we believe that his discipline, the pain in our lives, is an expression of his fatherly affection? Because it is only discipline that we receive, not punishment. There is a difference. Discipline is done to train one up in wisdom and love. Punishment is giving someone what they deserve. We deserve God's punishment. 
but we receive his discipline because Christ took our punishment on our behalf. On the cross, God's beloved son, the son whom he delighted in from all eternity, before the creation of the world, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took our punishment in our place so that sinners like you and me could become the very children of God. Christ died for you so that the Father could delight in you. Not because you're good enough, not because you've lived well enough, not because you're righteous enough, but because Christ is enough. The same delight that God has reserved for his son, he now pours out to all who take refuge in Christ by their repentance and their faith. You turn away from your sin and you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. You believe the gospel and there is no punishment left for you and no condemnation. Sometimes God's love takes the form of gentle, patient instruction like what you're hearing today. You're just receiving instruction today, not discipline. But sometimes God's love takes the form of painful discipline and reproof. But always, always, what we receive from the hand of God is an expression of his fatherly love for us. My friends, these are the five foundational values of the Christian family. They don't just describe the Tong family way, but the Christian family way. There are obviously other Christian values that we want to pass on to our children, but it, but it starts with these. It starts with these. And here's the main lesson of these verses. You know, all of us want to raise responsible, compassionate, hardworking children. But, but these verses teach us that we cannot, we, we cannot separate ethics from faith. We cannot separate morality and piety. We can't teach our kids to live rightly if they don't have a right relationship with God. There is moral instruction in these verses. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Honor the Lord with your wealth. He's telling us how to live. But the overall emphasis in these verses isn't on what that looks like, but on where it comes from. It comes from trusting the Lord, fearing the Lord, honoring the Lord, submitting to the Lord's discipline. The foundation of right living is a right relationship with God. You could say that it is teaching our children to have a Godward orientation through every season of life. And parents, God has given us the distinct responsibility and joy of showing our children what that looks like. And we do that by teaching them, but more importantly, we do that by modeling it for them. And so parents, this, this message is just as much for you as it is for your children. God calls you today to bind steadfast love and faithfulness on your heart by showing kindness to those in need. God is calling you today to trust in the Lord with all your heart by engaging in regular Bible reading and study. God is calling you to not be wise in your own eyes, 
but to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. How? By, by opening up your life to wise and godly counselors who can lead you. God is calling you to honor the Lord with your wealth by being generous to the poor and to the church. And God is calling you, oh, God is calling you today to not despise his discipline, but to receive it with open hands, believing that it comes to you out of his fatherly love. And by the grace of God, by our teaching and by our example, may our children bind these values around their necks and write them on the tablets of their hearts to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we believe that you are our Heavenly Father. We do not deserve to call you that, but by grace you have called us to address you as our Father. By grace we have been saved through faith to become the children of God. And uh, we pray first and foremost that all of us would learn to embody these values in our own lives, to trust you, to submit to you, to, to fear the Lord and turn away from evil, to honor you with our wealth, to not despise your discipline. And we pray that these values would pass on to the next generation so that when people see our lives, they would know that we are your people characterized by steadfast love and faithfulness to you and to those around us. We pray this trusting not in ourselves, but in you. In Jesus' name, amen.